The story of Elden Ring is an epic one, a tale of heroes and gods, of wars and creation, spanning a massive timeline. Yet those familiar with the game and its myriad stories will know that this timeline is far from clear. It is a complex mix of events presented to us through half-truths, rumours and myth with no clear idea of order or the passage of time. Yet after some time exploring the lore, we can get a general idea of an order of events, of certain epochs of history, of different ages in the lands between. And that is what this video will attempt to do, to present a plausible timeline that offers my perspective on the order of events, born from my long relationship studying this universe's lore. The way in which I've ordered the lore I believe is a logical one, by ordering events into different eras, with the acknowledgement that many events could easily be swapped within each era. However, with that being said, this is no easy task, nor is it a simple thing to discard my own preconceived notions and ideas of how things fit, and so I'd like to thank Lore Hunter and Tarnished Archaeologist who collaborated with me on this video not only by reviewing my timeline and giving their perspectives and corrections, but also writing and recording a section each. Before we begin, one final note is that recently George R.R. Martin, well-known father of content creator Quelag, appeared on Colbert's Late Show and made a brief comment about his work on Elden Ring and mentioned timescales that helps us a bit, but I will leave that to Lore Hunter and his section on The Shattering. With that said, let us take a journey through the histories of the Lands Between and its timeline. But before we begin, remember if you like Elden Ring lore, then consider subscribing to the channel, as I have hours of lore content for you on the channel. And the very first event on our timeline isn't an event, rather a state of being, the One Great. It won't be revolutionary to say that the start of Elden Ring's story and mythos appears to begin with this one great. Hayeta tells us that once, life existed in a singular form, before there were any individual life forms. All that there is came from the one great, then came fractures, and births, and souls, but the greater will made a mistake, torment, despair, affliction, every sin, every curse, Every one born of the mistake. And so, what was borrowed must be returned, melted all away with the yellow chaos flame. We do not know what form the One Great took, where it existed, or how long it existed for, only that it was the original source of life. According to Hayeta, and therefore the three fingers who are speaking through her, it was the greater will that then fractured this one great, meaning the greater will must have stimulated this change. The Golden Star This brings us to event number two in our timeline, which is the arrival of the Elden Beast and the Elden Ring, as told to us by Elden Star's incantation, which reads as follows. It is said that long ago, the greater will sent a golden star bearing a beast into the lands between which would later become the Elden Ring. The Greater Well never acts directly, and so it makes sense that even in this act, the act of fracturing the One Great, that it will have coincided with the arrival of the Elden Ring, a medium through which the Greater Well can control 
the lands between. I suggest that the power of the Elden Ring, its power to influence the world, is what reformed and fractured the One Great, and thus, the arrival of the Golden Star must have happened right at the beginning of our timeline. This now takes us on to one of the first dominant lifeforms that would emerge from this fracturing that we are aware of, the Ancient Dragons, which also takes us into our next era. We know that the Ancient Dragons are said to have ruled in what is referred to as the Prehistoric Era, and this is thanks to any of the Dragon Protection Talismans, which read as follows. The Ancient Dragons who ruled in the Prehistoric Era before the Erdtree would protect their lord as a wall of living rock. Now prehistory in our world is a huge period of history, roughly dating from about 2.5 million years ago to about 1200 BC, though dates do vary from region to region, as prehistory ends when writing begins, and that obviously happened at different stages for different civilizations. Regardless, what it shows is that the Empire of the Ancient Dragons must have existed very early in this timeline, even before the ancient civilization that built the Ul and Uld palaces, which align more closely with ancient history. The Beastmen Gain Intelligence Serving under the Ancient Dragons, another civilization arose. The Beastmen, who we know live alongside their draconic masters, thanks to the archaeological evidence found in Fire Missoula. Early human history in the real world is generally categorised through three main archaeological periods, the Stone Age, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. Through the Beastmen we can follow this same progression of their society, first of all learning that they were once a bestial species that eventually had intelligence granted upon them, as the Cinque Dea reads the following. The design celebrates a beast's five fingers, symbolic of the intelligence once granted upon their kind. Five fingers are of course symbolic because it is the symbol of an intelligent species' ability to use tools and weapons with their hands. Beastmen Stone Age Much like humanity's ancestors developing into the sentient species that we are today, one of the Beastmen's first steps in becoming more complex society is marked by their use of stone tools marking their Stone Age. We learn of their use of stone implements via the bestial sling incantation, which reads the following. It is said that in the time before the Erdtree, stones were the first weapons of the beasts who had gained intelligence. The beastmen would then advance to something akin to our Calcolithic period, an observation made by the tarnished archaeologists in their Farm Azula lore video, where they identify that the beastmen burials that we find in Farm Azula are very much based upon the real life Varna burials. The Varna burial site is a necropolis in Bulgaria that possesses the oldest gold treasure and jewellery in the world, dating from 4600 BC to 4200 BC. Now, we have placed the end of prehistory here at the beginning of ancient history to mirror our own world's eras, as history while not homogenous across the world, is generally accepted to have began with writing, the world's first instance of which was in the Bronze Age of Mesopotamia. Beastmen Iron Age Finally, the Beastmen would make it to their Iron Age, 
an age defined by Wikipedia that marks the advent of ferrous metallurgy and the metalworking techniques that allowed the use of iron tools and weapons. With that in mind, we know the Beastmen began to wield iron weapons that replaced some of their stone ones, as the description of the Beastman Cleaver reads, Carved greatsword of colossal size, forged of dull iron and wielded by the Beastmen of Farm Azula. The blade is incredibly heavy, but well balanced. Comparatively easy to wield for the damage it delivers, it is clear that the Beastmen possess knowledge beyond human ken. So the last line of the cleaver is important, not only for when we talk about the advent of smithing under the giants, but also because despite the prehistoric nature of the Beastmen and Dragon Society, it is clear that their techniques are fairly advanced, as they were able to create some wonders like Farmazula. Farmazula Constructed Farmazula is described as a mausoleum, such as in the description of the Azula Beastmen Ashes, but is also described as a royal city in the Old Lord's Talisman, suggesting that this majestic city was the centre of their civilization. It is widely believed, and I share this belief, that Farmazula was once situated and built on the ground, specifically in the Bay Area of the Lands Between, adjoining to where Dragon Barrow now lies. We know this due to the archaeological evidence found in Dragon Barrow. Firstly, the Great Bridge outside Bestial Sanctum is known as Fyrum Great Bridge, thanks to the site of Grace nearby, and indeed it does share the same architectural hallmarks as the Royal City. Then there is of course the Bestial Sanctum itself, clearly a building of Azula construction, and thus it leads us to conclude that Farm Azula was once rooted to this same spot. Emergence of Humanity It is possible that humanity had also emerged around this early era of the Lands Between. Around Fire Mazula, we can find engravings of human characters, leading us to conclude that there must have been human figures at this time. While dragons can take human form, as shown by Landsax's history, how would they even know what a human is to take this form if there was no frame of reference? Instead, I would offer that this is the first archaeological evidence of humankind, and is made even more interesting when you consider the appearance preset Draconian, which reads as follows. The stony face of the people of the ancient dragons, among whom life is typically short. Placidusax, Elden Lord The dragons not only ruled, but seemed to be the first custodians of the Elden Ring, having both a god and Elden Lord a mirror to Marika and her Elden Lord consorts. Ruling over this civilization seems to be the first pantheon, the first god and Elden Lord, who first brandished the Elden Ring. For not only do we see an early depiction of the Elden Ring within Fire Mazula itself, but we also learn of the Dragon Pantheon via the remembrance of the Dragon Lord, which reads, The Dragon Lord whose seat lies at the heart of the storm beyond time is said to have been Elden Lord in the age before the Erdtree. Once his god was fled, the Lord continued to await its return. This early era was the age of the dragons, ruled over by their Elden Lord and God. Beyond Time Obviously the other interesting part of Placidusax's remembrance is the fact that his god fled. The ruling god of his era, 
who he was consort to. This god is now gone, suggesting some greater calamity that happened to the dragon's civilization. Much like when Marika disappears in the time of the Shattering, we can imagine that the disappearance of this god will have definitely contributed to the downfall of this society. Placidius Axe now lies beyond time, and the reasoning for this seems clear from his remembrance. To preserve Faramazula and himself for the return of their god, in their hope that they can restore the dragon civilization. Sadly, this is an event that never comes to pass, and with the god fled and Elden Lord locked behind time, we can consider the reign of the dragons effectively over. The Dynast Civilization The next oldest civilization, based on archaeology, would be the civilization that built the Ul and Uld ruins, the ancient mausoleum and the Grand Cloister. I'm sure many are aware, but the architectural style of these buildings closely follows the styles of ancient Greece and ancient Assyrian civilizations. But it's at this stage that I will hand you over to Tarnished Archaeologist, who has kindly done a full breakdown and analysis of this ancient civilization. Elden Ring's world is littered with the discarded and long-forgotten remnants of previously great empires. The ruins of Furumazula are scattered across Limgrave and Lyurnia. The mysterious divine towers are left as remnants of civilizations with long-lost power, now barely even conceivable in the modern era. All of these evoke the opening lines of the famous Welsh poem called The Ruin, which begins, quote, These wallstones are wondrous. Calamities crumpled them. These city-states crashed. The work of giants decaying, end quote. Written by an unknown poet as he marveled at the ruins of a prior great civilization that was so inconceivably impressive he could only imagine it was the work of giants. So it is in Elden Ring. The decaying work of giants is found everywhere. And there's no better example of this than the great and mysterious ruins of the ancient dynasty. These ruins, which are Hellenistic and early Roman in their architectural features, convey a deep antiquity to the civilization. The ruins themselves are scattered across vast spaces of the lands between, from Upper Lyurnia to Schiefer River to the Grand Cloister, attesting to the impressive breadth of this once great civilization. We know about the existence of the ancient dynasty from the Oracle Bubbles description, but beyond this, there is essentially no written evidence in game of their culture. In order to place them within the proposed timeline of the lands between, we must therefore rely on the archaeological evidence. As we've said, the architecture is a mixture of classical Greek, Hellenistic, and Roman, all conveying the deep antiquity of this civilization. On the specific point of placing this civilization within the timeline of Elden Ring, we can clearly see that the developers have drawn inspiration from real-world archaeology and history to tell their story. The Eternal City of Nokron is actually embedded within the Grand Viaduct of the ancient dynasty, indicating a sort of cultural continuity between these two civilizations. In much the same way, you might find Greek ruins in the IRL Eternal City of Rome, as the classical Romans borrowed heavily from the culture and architecture of the Greeks. And, sure enough, you can see faint glimpses of this cultural heritage in the grave steles still scattered around Nokron. Throughout Shifa River and the adjacent Mogwin Dynasty mausoleum, we can see these same steles depicting various animals, 
signifying a dominant naturalistic religion. The stilas which we light to progress in Shifa River are modeled in form off the black obelisk of Shalmaneser, a great Neo-Assyrian king, but instead of the relief scenes depicting various conquered kings, as in Shalmaneser stile, they depict a ritual involving sacred trees. More on that in a future video, but for now the point is they clearly had their own naturalistic culture. And then there is the so-called Dynast, affectionately termed Elden John, whose crumbling visage scatters the Ul and Uld palace ruins, and whose full form we can see in the Mogwen Dynasty mausoleum, in the subterranean Ansel River, and in the mysterious and impressive Grand Cloister. We've delved into this previously in a separate video, but to briefly summarize, the Dynast depiction is that of an itinerant preacher, dressed as he is in humble robes and shown clutching a tablet, an object evidently of great importance to both him and his followers. The tablet is invariably split in identical fashion, not by the processes of time, but by the design of the sculptor. The lower half, lying at his feet, is a replica of the real-world Imago Mundi, also known as the Babylonian world map, a depiction of the entire world as it was known to the Neo-Babylonians. The upper half, which the dynast still clutches, simply depicts a great tree. The combined symbolism is clear. The statues show the discarding of the old, more polytheistic or even secular world, and the embracing of a new religion, dominated by the singular worship of the great sacred tree, a tree that literally sits astride the entire world, and is now seen to be even growing roots out of the dynast himself. The dynast, modeled off of Moses and other great prophets, is preaching a kind of tree monotheism, prophesizing the coming age of the great tree. So now, to place this all within the larger story and timeline of the game, we would suggest that the dynast lived in a time perhaps even before the building of these great Hellenistic ruins. Likewise, if the dynast prophesized about the coming of the great tree, it stands to reason that this civilization rose and fell before the first great tree, hence the lack of tree iconography elsewhere amongst its grand architecture. The dynast likely did not live to see the age of the great tree, but up above in Lyurnia, at the four belfries, we do see a depiction of a figure suggestively similar to the dynast, with the similar long beard and even the similar position of his hands. Only now, the dynast is aged, and at his feet, the new tree has begun to grow. This is his prophecy coming to fruition. We'll leave the description of that great tree era to Smo for now, but rest assured, it did come. And in the end, much more so than the ruined marble columns and grand viaducts, it is the ancient dynasty's true legacy. The Great Tree As tarnished archaeologists have suggested here, I am now in agreement that there was a great tree that preceded the crucible and the Erd tree, a great tree prophesied by this dynast. In time, the great tree would spread its roots throughout the world, including throughout Fire Missoula, where we can see the roots protruding from the earth still attached to its base, suggesting that the spread of the great tree preceded Fire Missoula's skyward departure. While there is some controversy over the translation regarding Erd tree and great tree, 
where some think the Great Tree is a separate entity from the Erd Tree, or translators like Last Protagonist who have confirmed that they are one and the same, becomes irrelevant with TA's interpretation of what happened next. The theory being that following the demise of the Great Tree, a process known in the real world as sprouting would occur, a process known to us in Elden Ring as the Crucible. But we will touch on this later, but to me this sequence of events explains the long contested differences between the Great Tree and the Erd Tree. Destruction of Fire Mazula Some event evidently led to Fire Mazula being reduced to a ruin that floated in the sky. And quoting the Old Lord's Talisman, it is a ruin that has been crumbling since time immemorial. And indeed, these shattered remains of buildings that we find scattered through Leonia and Limgrave appear to have come from Fire Mazula, as the ruin item description reads as follows. These shards of stone are believed to have once been part of a temple in the sky. Evidently, something happened to the royal city that not only led to it becoming shattered, but also airborne. And while tackling the airborne question is a little bit more tricky, we know what contributed to it becoming a crumbling ruin. It is the result of a meteorite collision, as we learn via the ruin's greatsword which states, Originally rubble from a ruin which fell from the sky. This surviving fragment was honed into a weapon. The ruin it came from crumbled when struck by a meteorite. As such, this weapon harbours its destructive power. So clearly, the shattered remnants of Farmazula are a result of the meteorite strike that is described by the Ruin's Greatsword. And if the Ruin's Greatsword is imbued with gravity magic, a fragment of Farmazula itself, perhaps the same gravity magic is why Farmazula is skybound. Maybe all of the Ruins are affected by the gravity magic of the meteorite that once hit it. Onyx and Alabaster Lords Another ancient event that we need to place upon the timeline is the arrival of the Alabaster and Onyx Lords. We learn of this via their swords, which both read as follows. A weapon unique to the Onyx and Alabaster Lords, a race of ancients with stone skin who were said to have risen to life when a meteor struck long ago. The reason I place this here in the timeline is the fact they are considered ancients, making them of course very old, but also because it is possible that this meteor strike that brought them could have been the same event that wrecked Old Farm Azula. Regardless, we can see this unique race of beings being born a long time in Elden Ring's distant past. The Death Rites The Earth Tree in latter parts of the timeline would come to dominate funerary and burial practices, but in the ancient times, another force would hold sway over this domain. I of course refer to the death rites and the death birds. We have it implied that these practices are ancient, that took place in a time long before the Erdtree. And we get this by examining the descriptions of ancient death rancor and explosive ghost flame. The fact that death birds are still symbolic of death to this day shows how deeply ingrained their influence is and leads us to conclude that the Death Birds oversaw the Death Rites a very long time ago. 
War of the Ice Dragons and the Giants. After the fall of the Ancient Dragons, it is implied that an offshoot species would emerge, the Modern Dragons. Of these Modern Dragons, there was a subspecies that would come to live in cold environments, in the region we know as the Mountaintops of the Giants. These are of course dragon kin to Borealis, the ice dragon that we actually fight in-game. At some point, the dragons dominated this mountaintop, a time before the fire giants dominated it. And thus, when the fire giants did come to this region and want to control it, the two species would clash, an event we learn of via Borealis's mist, which reads as follows. The ice dragons were once lords of the mountaintops long ago, until they were defeated by the fire giants and chased from the peak. And thus, this marked the beginning of the fire giant civilization. The giants invent smithing. We learn the following via the hammer description, as it reads, Hammer comprised of a large stone affixed to a metal handle, originally a blacksmith's tool. The art of smithing is said to have originated among the giants. This makes sense given the Flame of Ruin is located in the Forge of the Giants, a forge being a hearth meant for heating metal so it can be shaped. To me it suggests that the Fire Giants learned of these arts via the Fell God, given its association with fire. It may appear to contradict the lore we looked at earlier, with the Beastmen utilising iron weapons, but I do not believe this to be the case, as the Beastman Cleaver makes it clear that the Beastmen had knowledge beyond human ken, suggesting this weapon was created using another unknown technique, whereas the more widespread practice of blacksmithing that humans will use appears to have originated here with the Fire Giants. I also do place this after the ancient society that built the Ul and Uld civilizations, because the claymen of these cultures do not wield smith weapons. In fact, it appears like they are using crude stone daggers and blades. The Giants, an early astrologer society. After the defeat of the Ice Dragons, the Fire Giants would be the masters of these mountains and establish their own society and structures. But not only that, we learned that an early astrologer community developed at this time on the mountains alongside the Giants. We learn this from the Sword of Flame and Night, which reads the following. Astrologers, who preceded the sorcerers, established themselves in the mountain tops that nearly touched the sky, and considered the fire giants their neighbours. The astrologer community is likely the precursor community to the Carrions and the Rhea Lucarians, especially since their techniques are more primitive. The idea of being closer to the stars by being up a high mountain suggests a lack of advanced tools and advanced understanding of the stars. Zamor Civilization We know that the Zamor Civilization dates back quite a bit, as their armour set reads the following. These long-lived warriors, clad in biting, freezing winds, are said to have been the mortal enemies of the fire giants since time immemorial. The fact that phrase time immemorial is used suggests that the Zamor have been fighting the giants for a long time, meaning they must have developed on the mountaintops not long after the giants did. The arrival of the Numen. 
The Numen are a race of humanoids from a world described as outside the lands between by Marika's Hammer. In fact, it is a race that we can choose as our base appearance when creating our characters. So let's read that description now. The face of the Numen, supposed descendants of denizens of another world, long lived but seldom born. Importantly, it says descendants of denizens of another world, meaning the Numen have been here for some time, hence placing it far back. Another reason for placing their arrival this early in the timeline is due to the fact that Queen Marika is one of their kind, as we learn via the Numen's Rune, which reads the following. The Numen are said to have come from outside the lands between, and are in fact of the same stock as Queen Marika herself. So the Numen needed to have arrived, become established, before the Erdtree was even emerging, so that Marika has enough time to be selected as Imperian. Construction of Divine Towers The Divine Towers are somewhat of a mystery, but one thing that isn't a mystery is that they were built before the Erdtree emerged. As Eridan, a fellow content creator, points out in his superb Limgrave lore video, there is a painting in Stormvale Castle that shows Storm Hill. Two things are conspicuously absent in this painting. One, Stormvale Castle itself is not in this painting, and we will get to Stormvale later. But number two, the Erdtree and its light is also absent in this painting. So this at least narrows it down to pre-Erdtree and pre-Godfrey Conquest. And to me, I place it closer to the giants because the architectural style of these towers is closely matched to that of the forge. And while I'm not sure that the giants would build these, or if they actually did, the purpose of this video is a timeline, and thus the similar architectural styles to me suggest that it must fit in here in the timeline. Development of Laurnian Society We have already discussed how the astrologist community once developed on the mountaintops of the giants, and at some stage they must have come down and settled in Laurnia. The Laurnian community has had a long history, from the establishment of the Rhea Lucarian Academy to the founding of the Carian Dynasty. And for all of this to have happened before the Erdtree Wars, there must have been a good long history before this, hence my justification for putting this event in the timeline. Emergence of the Crucible In the past, I have considered the Crucible to be the force that formed at the fracturing of the One Great and was the source of all life. However, Tarnished Archaeologist has instead suggested another compelling timeline, that there was a Great Tree, then there was the Crucible immediately preceding the Earth Tree. And if you remember, Tarnished Archaeologist has already discussed the coming of the Great Tree and its significance in early architecture. Tarnished Archaeologist's reasoning for this progression is as follows. There was once a Great Tree that preceded the Earth Tree, which was destroyed, but from its remains and stump began a process called root sprouting, where there were many competing sprouts that were growing from the stump in an attempt to regenerate it. If you look at this artistic representation of the process, you can see that it is very reflective of the depiction in Soluria's helm and Soluria's spear.
and what TA calls the Gardener statues. Tarnished archaeologists will be releasing a video soon on this subject, and so I will leave the details to them regarding this theory. But upon reflection, I do think it is correct that the Crucible is a transitionary state for the Erd Tree that immediately preceded the Erd Tree's emergence, especially if we consider the Godskin Noble set, which reads, Nobles are the most ancient apostles who are said to have assimilated inhuman physiology, not unlike the Crucible, the Erd Tree in its primordial form. The Erd Tree in its primordial form is as if the Crucible is nothing more than a specific earlier state of the Erd Tree. Horalu's Wars. It is of course in this time, the time of the Crucible, and prior to the Erd Tree's emergence, that Horalu will have gained his fearsome reputation. We know that Horalu was a far more brutal man than he would be as Godfrey. Horalu was a man who believed it was strength that befit a lord. Not only through his dialogue, whereupon he is defeated, and he then states that our strength, our strength in defeating him, befits our position as a lord, but also the description of the axe, which reads the following. In the days of the past, a crown was warranted with strength, and Horlu's strength would be proven many times over. We hear of him via the Morn Greatsword, which reads, The storied sword of Castle Morn, a revenger's weapon. It is burdened with oceans of anger and regret. A lone surviving champion from a country now vanished was so determined to continue fighting that he claimed the swords of an entire clan of warriors. We can get a little clarification from the description of Oath of Vengeance, the weapon art for this weapon. It reads, Swear an oath upon the greatsword to avenge the clan. To avenge the clan, meaning that this revenger has gathered the swords of his entire clan, who have evidently been wiped out and he is the lone surviving member. The reason we know that this clan was wiped out by Horalu is due to the fact the sword monument found outside Castle Morn makes it clear that Horalu, or Godfrey, is the target of the Revenger's ire. Given what we know of Horalu's mantra, i.e. might equals right, I would speculate that it was just one of many clans obliterated by Horalu in his quest to prove that he is the mightiest of all. The Crucible Knights We of course know that the Crucible Knights were an elite cadre of warriors specialised in Crucible incantations that served Godfrey, for the Crucible Knight Helm reads, Helm of the Crucible Knights, who served Godfrey, the first Elden Lord. When they were specifically founded is unclear, but given their association with the Crucible, clearly it must have been during this era. Emergence of the Erd Tree Of course, at some stage, the Erd Tree would emerge from its transitional form, the Crucible as we learn from varying sources such as the Godskin Noble set. The emergence of the tree changed the makeup of the world, and immediately its power was seen as a threat by many. This is something we learn via the protection of the Erd Tree incantation, which reads, In the beginning, everything was in opposition to the Erd Tree, but through countless victories in war, it became the embodiment of order. Of course, it is obvious from Godfrey's armour set that the early age of the Erd Tree was a brutal era marked by war, and therefore the Erd Tree would have needed some defenders. Marika as Imperian 
We know that Empyreans are those chosen to be potential gods, candidates for the next era, and we learn this via Rani's crucial dialogue. I was once an Empyrean of the demigods. Only I, Mikola, and Melania could claim that title. Each of us was chosen by our own two fingers as a candidate to succeed Queen Marika to become the new god of the coming age. Therefore, it is interesting to know that Marika was once an Empyrean prior to being a god, which is told to us via the remembrance of the Black Blade that refers to her specifically as an Empyrean. This means that Marika was elected from among her people, the Numen, as a candidate to lead the age of the Erdtree. I have made the Erdtree Wars its own distinct transitionary period, because clearly by the time of the War of the Giants, the Erdtree had emerged and the Crucible was no more, and yet, according to the Sword Monument, found atop the mountain tops of the Giants, the age of the Erdtree didn't truly begin until the Fire Giants fell, and so this tumultuous period is no longer the age of the Crucible, but not quite the age of the Erdtree. Thus, I've made it its own distinct, if transitionary, period. The Founding of Laendale In the Laendale map item description, Laendale is described as the royal city of the Erdtree, and thus it makes sense that the city was founded early on in the age of the Erdtree, a holy city built around the most holy relic on this earth to those who believed in it. Whether it was founded before the War of the Giants or when it was concluded is of course speculation, but all massive cities throughout history begin small and take several generations to reach their zenith. They aren't just built in one day. Rome, of course, being a great example, famously not built in a day. So for me, it makes sense that as soon as the Erdtree emerged, those loyal to it would have most likely began flocking to it and building at its base to some degree. Godfrey, First Elden Lord Evidently, one of Marika's first acts will have been to marry Horalu, no doubt to bind his strength to her. With the prospect of becoming a lord, Godfrey vowed to be more lordlike and leave his bloodlust behind him, and to use his strength for more focused goals. And we learn of this transformation via the Godfrey icon, which reads the following. Godfrey was a ferocious warrior. When he vowed to become a lord, he took the beast regent, Sarosh, upon his back to suppress the ceaseless lust for battle that raged within. While Horalu would no longer be a bloodthirsty destroyer, he evidently still had the might and will to persecute wars on behalf of Marika and the Erdtree. As we saw in the protection of Erdtree incantation, everything was in opposition to the Erdtree at the beginning, and thus it makes sense that the early era of the Erdtree, when it first emerged, was one marked by war, and therefore the following wars make sense to have come early in Godfrey's reign. The War with the Stormlord Of course this conflict is one of Godfrey's greatest victories, and is referenced in his Elden Lord armour set, and a lot of what I know of this war comes from Eredin's excellent lore video on Limgrave, so definitely check that out. As Eredin points out, there is a painting in Stormvale that shows the castle was built after the Divine Tower, and this is the painting we referenced earlier in the video 
that shows Storm Hill without the castle but with the Divine Tower. And to me this does track when we consider who the Storm Lord really was, or what the Storm Lord really was. And to me the most likely candidate is the Stormhawk King. The description of its ashes reads as follows. Ashes of a hawk, revered by all others as sovereign, back in the day when Stormvale's winds still raged like no other. This ancient monarch is proud however, refusing to answer anyone's summons. So quite clearly this hawk was a monarch, and it makes sense that it would rule over a domain and not need a castle. Given all the associations with Storm at Storm Hill, where Storm Vale will be built, I do believe that the Storm Lord was this hawk, and we get further evidence that this was the Storm Lord via the Warhawk Ashes, which reads, Spirit of a Storm Vale Warhawk, the talons of which have been sliced off so that razor-fine swords could be grafted in their place. With its lord vanquished and its wings wounded, the hawk perished as it solemnly gazed at its former home. To me it's clear that the lord of this hawk is the Stormhawk King, the Storm Lord, defeated by Horalu so that he could claim its domain, Storm Hill. The Building of Stormvale Erdin makes a compelling argument that Godfrey is the one to have built Stormvale Castle after the defeat of the Stormlord. Godfrey respects strength, and his respect for the Stormlord is shown in the hawk iconography displayed around the castle. More importantly, there is a custom-built throne room displaying Godfrey iconography and statues, again suggesting that this was the seat of his power that he built himself, the Siege of Morn. This of course leads on from the aforementioned Revenger we spoke of in the Horalu chapter, where this story would come to its conclusion, and to consider the Siege of Morn itself, we need to consider the Castle Morn. The Weeping Peninsula appears to be an arrival point for many travelling to the lands between, as we can see boats littering the coast in this area. Much like King's Landing from George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, Morn sits right on a coastal area, as if it were built where someone first landed. Given the name Morn, as in Morning, and that the Sword of Morn is the storied weapon of this castle, I would suggest that the Revenger himself was responsible for the construction of the Castle Morn, and that they came here and built their base in order to challenge Godfrey, who may well have established himself here after the defeat of the Storm King and the building of Stormvale Castle. As we know from the sword monument found outside Castle Morn, we know how it ends, with Godfrey defeating one more opponent and claiming the spoils, Castle Morn and the Sword of Morn itself. It is interesting to note that both Stormvale Castle and Morn are still in the possession of the Golden Lineage to this day. With these conquests, the Erdtree forces would control the entirety of the southern peninsula of the Lands Between, leaving their most deadly rivals to remain in the north. The War of the Giants An event that needs little introduction to many, but a hugely dense and important event nonetheless. Upon the defeat of the Giants, the Age of the Erdtree would officially begin, making it a really important event. There are a number of different incidents that happened during this war that are important to note, such as the betrayal of the Trolls, those giantkin who would fight against the fire giants, 
and thus explains their widespread presence in the lands between during the Erdtree era. We know that Godfrey and Marika also personally fought in this war. Godfrey is mentioned to have in his armour set, and Marika also gave a speech here. Hark, brave warriors. Hark, my lord Godfrey. We commend your deeds. Guidance hath delivered ye through each ordeal to the place ye stand. Put the giants to the sword and confine the flame atop the mount. Let a new epoch begin, an epoch glistening with life. Brandish the Elden Ring for the age of the Erdtree. Marika is also reputed to have slain the fell god of the fire giants, according to the One-Eyed Shield. The Zaymor joined the Erdtree forces to finally destroy their ancient foes, and according to their armour set, they were heralded as heroes for their role within this war. The Confinement of Flame We learn via the remembrance of the fire giant that upon realising the flame of ruin could never be extinguished, even with the fell god and the giants put to sword, Marika confined the first fire giant to stand vigil next to the flame of ruin amongst the dead of his kin. It would also be around this time that the Order of the Fire Monks would be established to watch over and quarantine the flame. And with that, the age of the Erdtree would officially begin. The Age of Plenty The Age of the Erdtree began, and we learn of a period known as the Age of Plenty, which is marked by life energy falling as dew from the Erdtree itself. For example, we learn of it via the Blessed Dew Talisman, which reads as follows. It was once thought that the blessed sap of the Erdtree would drip from its boughs forever, but that Age of Plenty swiftly came to a close, and with time, the Erdtree became more an object of faith. We also know that Godfrey was very much still Elden Lord in this early era, because when this dew fell and hardened and became amber, these ambers were prized possessions of Godfrey's reign, as we learn via the Amber Medallions. Indeed, according to the Erdtree Favour Talisman, Queen Marika herself would bestow these gifts upon the faithful in person. In general, we can see the imagery associated with this era as one of positivity and bounty, showing amphoras and chalices full of dew. However, as already seen in the Blessed Dew Talisman, this era did not last long. And to me, the reason it didn't last long is because I see this as another transitional state between the Crucible and the Erdtree, where the newly emerged Erdtree was still bursting with the chaotic life energy of the Crucible. The Nox Heresy We know via the Nox armour set that these people were banished underground at some stage for invoking the ire of the Greater Will, and given the description and purpose of the Finger Slayer Blade, my most likely assumption is that it was for killing a two fingers. And we know that these so-called Nox were once the Numen that Marika herself was a member of, as the Black Knife Assassin set says that they are Numen, and Rogier links them to the Eternal City also. Numen and Nox are one and the same, and if you'd like to see a deeper video on those types of connections, I would refer you to my Eternal Cities lore video. In all honesty, it is hard to place where the Nox actually came into being, 
when they did invoke the ire of the greater will and were banished. However, I am more inclined to place it here, further along the timeline, because of the sophisticated architectural style of the Eternal Cities that appear closer to Gothic architecture of our real world. The Golden Lineage Of course, one of Godfrey's most enduring legacies is the Golden Lineage, the birth of his and Marika's children. I believe this must have come early on in the Erdtree era to give chance for this famous lineage to propagate before Godfrey was hounded from the lands between. We learn of the Golden Lineage via Godric's Great Rune, which reads as follows. The first of the demigods were the Elden Lord Godfrey and his offspring, the Golden Lineage. So this is the beginning of the idea of demigods. Potential first generation members of this lineage are of course Moog and Morgoth, the Omen Twins. We know that these twins are of the Golden Lineage via Morgoth's Great Rune, while they could of course be later descendants of Godfrey, the fact that Godfrey acknowledges that he has a relationship with Morgoth in the scene where he lays Morgoth to rest. It's been a long while, Morgoth. Suggests indeed that Godfrey had actually met Morgoth before, suggesting he is Godfrey's son rather than one of the later descendants of the Golden Lineage. Another presumed member of this first generation is Godwin, given his prominence in early Erdtree history. Regardless, this is where the Golden Lineage and the Demigods begin. The Arenas Godfrey was a champion who valued martial strength over everything else, and so sitting still, even in peacetime, was not an option, and so Godfrey finds the Arenas, and we learn this via the Ritual Sword Talisman, which reads... A talisman patterned after the swords used in ritual combat held to honour the Erdtree. The practice had died out by the age of King Consort Radigan, but remains of the arenas where ritual combat took place can still be found in every land. By implication, because this practice had died out under Radigan, it means that this practice was established under Godfrey, and this makes sense given of what we know of the man. Carrion Royalty as mentioned earlier, already by this time the people of Liurnia will have a rich history, and the Academy of Raelicaria clearly precedes the Carrions, and I see the establishment of their royalty as a fairly recent event, given that Renala is both the founder and now current queen, meaning that not enough time has even passed for there to be even more than one monarch. The Godskin Apostasy the Godskin apostasy is a difficult one to place again, but I think the main thing that we can say with some certainty is that it must have taken place after Marika's ascension because of the Black Flame monks. We learn from their armour set that the Black Flame monks joined the forces of the Godslaying Black Flame, meaning that they were active at the same time of the Godskin apostasy, and given that the monks only existed after Marika had confined the flame, we must place it after the beginning of the Erdtree Age. The reason for my focus on where this important event sits is because of what happens at the conclusion of the war. It is very critical. Upon Malekith's victory over the Glomide Queen and her apostles, he seals death and death, as we learn via the Scouring Black Flame incantation, which reads, The Black Flame could once slay the gods, 
but when Malekith sealed Destin's death, the true power of the Black Flame was lost. This is the moment that death was confined, and thus is super important because this is also the moment that the Golden Order was founded. For the Mending Rune of the Death Prince reads as follows, the Golden Order was created by confining Destin's death. This is also my reasoning for placing it at this stage, as we know from other sources that the Golden Order has to have existed within this period before other certain events. We learn from Sorcerer Rogier that the Laernians were adopted into the Erdtree royal family, i.e. when Renala and Radigan got married, when the Golden Order was already around. They were conceived at the Great Academy of Rhea Lucaria, to the north of this castle. In the past, they obeyed laws which contravened the Golden Order, or so I'm told. Fascinating, isn't it? That the Golden Order was pliable enough to absorb practices that contradicted itself in the past. With the Order broken, twisted, and in need of repair, such adaptability is more important now than ever. This of course means a number of things in regards to the timeline. The Golden Order was a thing before Radigan became Elden Lord, and thus the events that led to its formation, the removal of death after the Godskin apostasy, must also have already happened by the time of the two Laernian Wars, before Radigan married Renala, and before Godfrey was hounded from the lands between. So now that we have established that, what actually happened in this important event? Well, the Black Flame Ritual Incantation tells us that the Glomide Queen is an Empyrean, meaning that she was elected by the Greater Will at some stage as a nominee to replace Marika. She and her followers, the Godskin Apostles, wielding the power of the God-slaying Black Flame, an element that wielded death and death, as we learn via the numerous items like the Scouring Black Flame. We know via the Godskin Swaddling Cloth that the purpose of these beings was to bring death to the gods, and therefore we must assume that they were to bring death to Marika and her demigod family. Of course, the Godslayer Greatsword tells us of their defeat via Malekith, who not only bested the Glomide Queen, but would also seal death and death to sap the power of the Godslaying Black Flame and death forever. The Golden Order as already discussed, the Golden Order is the new order that reflects the new shape of the Elden Ring, one absent the Rune of Death. It is an order of death confined. It is also founded on another principle, as told to us by Brother Corin, who states, The Golden Order is founded on the principle that Marika is the one true god. The Glomide Queen was an Empyrean, and it's almost as if Marika was so rattled by what another Empyrean meant it meant that she was disposable to the greater will. Thus, she had to re-establish herself as the one true god. Not only that, but the forces that opposed her, the Godskin Apostles, had the power and the intention to slay her and her kin, bringing her mortality starkly into view, leading to the radical decision to completely confine death. One further thing to note is that the Golden Order as a general body of rule is not the same as Golden Order Fundamentalism, which is a specific subset of scholars that we will discuss later. The Two Wars of Laernia This is of course one of the major conflicts in the early Erdtree era, that we learn of via two sword monuments which read, The First Laernian War, 
Radigan's glory burns red as his hair. And the Second Lyranian War. No victory for the golden, nor for the moon. No prize but atonement. The birth of a vow. It makes sense that these two factions would come into conflict, as by now they would be the two remaining major factions in the lands between, and given how aggressively the Erdtree forces had been in eliminating all opposition, it was inevitable that they would come for the Carrions and their land. This is one of the most important events in the Lands Between history, and thus there are several points of interest to consider. Firstly, Godfrey is still Elden Lord at this stage, because he has not been hounded from the Lands Between until Radigan has married Renala, as we learn via Muriel. Given what we know of Godfrey's penchant for war, it's interesting that we get very little mention of him during this conflict. Instead, the focus goes elsewhere, as this is the first emergence of a legendary hero. This is the emergence of Radigan, who joins the champion's ranks. Seemingly out of nowhere, and yet his heroism during these wars is repeatedly hammered home. This isn't a lore video on Radigan, but if you would like to see my take on Radigan, then please watch my video on Marika. But in essence, I'm in the camp that believes that Radigan has always been a part of Marika since she obtained godhood, so that together they are the perfect alchemical rebus, a living representation of the ideals of regression and convergence. Regardless of Radigan's power, this would be a hard-fought conflict for both sides. This would be in no small part thanks to the legendary Carrion Knights, whose legendary exploits we can learn via their sword description, which reads, These knight's swords could serve as catalysts, letting them wield sorceress battle skills. Despite numbering fewer than 20, this power made them a match for even the champions of gold in battle. Despite the low numbers of the Carrion Knights, their power and skill made them a match for the best of the Erdtree forces, and thus two wars would be fought to a standstill between both the Erdtree and the Carrion forces. But then something crucial would happen at the end of the Second War. Peace. Peace bound by marriage, between Radigan, Champion of Gold, and Renala, Queen of the Moon. A ceremony that would take place in the Church of Vows, in sight of both Moon and Tree. The Carrion Royal Line and Erdtree Royalty were joined, a remarkable display of integration shown by the Erdtree forces that has never again been seen. Radigan and Renala Many important events would happen during the course of Renala and Radigan's marriage. Firstly, the birth of three important future demigods, Radan, Rikard, and Rani. The other important factor is what Radigan learned during his time married to Renala, as we learn via the Radigan Talisman, which reads as follows. As the husband of Renala of Caria, the red-haired Radigan studied sorcery, and as the husband of Queen Marika, he studied incantations. Thus did the hero aspire to be complete. The idea of combining intelligence-based sorceries and faith-based studies is a core facet of the Golden Order of Fundamentalism that Radigan would later help develop. War of the Ancient Dragons the War of the Ancient Dragons is another difficult one to place precisely. All we can say for certain is that it took place after Godwin's death, given his obvious involvement in the war, 
but before the Knight of the Black Knives, for obvious reasons. I am inclined to place it before Godfrey was hounded from the lands between, as I see Godfrey's era as the era of war, but beyond that I have no real proof and it could happen anywhere in Godwin's lifetime. Regardless, the main takeaways from this era are Grandsacks being felled in the centre of Leyendale, and the establishment of the Draconic Tree Sentinels and a dragon cult within Leyendale, and of course, the legendary friendship between Godwin and Vortisax, Godfrey and the Tarnished. Godfrey's armour tells us that after he defeated all his worthy enemies, the hue from his eyes faded, and it is clear that this is when Godfrey and his warriors became tarnished. The hue from his eyes has a double meaning, not only does it mean he has lost all purpose, but it also means literally he has lost grace. Tarnishing is the loss of grace. The sword monument near Caled reads, Lord Godfrey, at last, at the end of his campaign, his golden armies unvanquished and unbowed, yet finds grace lost, tattered and faded. It in fact appears that the loss of grace is not accidental, but a purposeful stripping by Merica, as she once said the following, My lord, and thy warriors, I divest each of thee of thy grace. With thine eyes dimmed, ye will be driven from the lands between. Ye will wage war in a land afar, where ye will live and die. Then, after thy death, I will give back what I once claimed, return to the lands between, wage war, and brandish the Elden Ring, grow strong in the face of death. Warriors of my lord, Lord Godfrey. Godfrey was the lord of the battlefield, and in the lands between, he no longer had a purpose. Yet Marika did have a purpose for him and his warriors, and so she made them tarnished to go and fight out with the lands between and return when they were needed. We know that the tarnished, those without grace, are seen as lesser by those with grace, and we can see this in the way that Kenneth Height reacts to us upon first meaning. Ah, you've come to lend me your aid, have you? Well, that's... that's very kind, but, um... No. No, the help is very much appreciated, even from a tarnished. And the way in which Muriel describes Godfrey being hounded from the lands between, suggesting that he and his tarnished were chased by those with grace out of the lands between because they were seen as lesser and unwelcome. The Long March After being driven from the lands between, Godfrey would lead his new tarnished on something known as the Long March, which we learn of via his axe. While it appears that this was a sort of crusade, it apparently did have a purpose, as we learn it came to an end via Horalu's Remembrance, which reads, When Godfrey, first Elden Lord, was robbed of his grace, becoming tarnished, he took with him his kinfolk and left the lands between. After the long march of the tarnished came to an end, Godfrey divested himself of kingship, becoming a simple warrior once more. Thus he became Horalu again, and after a long time of battling wars that broke his axe, he and his people would finally settle out with the lands between. Horalu specifically became a chieftain of the Badlands, but the tarnish would become widespread throughout different nations. 
the Ascension of Radigan. A well-known and important event as told to us by Muriel, Radigan abandons Renala after Godfrey has been chased from the Lands Between and returns to the capital to marry Marika. This is baffling to many, including Muriel, given Radigan's relatively low standing, he is just a mere champion, and his abrupt abandonment of his wife. Upon his marriage to Marika, he becomes the second Elden Lord, and his children, Radan, Rikard, and Rani, become Marika's stepchildren. The Divine Twins At some point after Radigan's marriage to Renala, the twins Melania and Mikla would be born, special but cursed, due to the nature of their birth from their one-bodied god, i.e. being born from Marika and Radigan while they are one body. Melania is afflicted with the Scarlet Rot, but according to Gowrie is elected as an Empyrean to replace Marika as the Goddess of Rot, leading the new Order of Rot. And if you want to see a video discussing these ideas, then I'd refer you to my Outer God lore video. Mikola is also chosen as Empyrean, no doubt on account of his wisdom, and together with Rani, we now have three potential successors to the next age. Development of Fundamentalism We learn via Discus of Light, Triple Rings of Light, and Radigan's Rings of Light, that father and son work together to help develop the ideals and incantations of Golden Order Fundamentalism, and as such, I attribute the birth of this theology to be around this time. The motivations for father and son seem to be very different. Radigan is extremely loyal to the ideals of the Golden Order, whereas Mikla is seemingly seeking a cure for his sister to rid her of the Scarlet Rot. Mikla the Unalloyed Radigan's Rings of Light also tell us that Mikla became disillusioned with the Golden Order, and it must have been soon after that he would choose his own path as the unalloyed. In time, he would take the sapling of a minor earth tree, watering it with his own blood in an attempt to create his own earth tree. This of course would become the Halig tree, the holy tree. Rhea Lucaria rebels. We learn from the remembrance of Renala that after Radigan left, she was broken, and the Rhea Lucarians took this opportunity to imprison Renala within the Grand Library, something we learn via Muriel, and in general, it looks like Rhea Lucaria and the Cuckoos rebel from the Carrions, as we learn via a sword monument which details a battle between the Cuckoos and Caria Manor. It reads, The resting place of the contemptible Cuckoos lost in the siege of Caria Manor. And indeed, some of the remnants of Cuckoo forces are now puppets that patrol the manor they once laid siege to. Rani conspires with the Nox. We know the assassins of the Knight of the Black Knives are women from the Eternal Cities, most likely the nimble swordstresses, and at some stage, Rani must have put her plans into motion some time before the assassination took place and reached out to the Eternal Cities. This is stage one in her plan to cut ties with her two fingers, and it may well be that the events of the Cuckoo Rebellion and the downfall of her family's prominence spurred her into action, though as we will soon see, her plans would be halted by her brother, the Star Scourge. Knight of the Black Knives The Rune of Death is stolen from Malekith, and we know from Malekith's Black Blade that he only had the rune hidden in his own flesh after this night, meaning it was still located in his sword at this time, and thus probably quite easy to steal. 
Rani's co-conspirators manage to catch Godwin off guard due to their cloaks that fool the eye and carve the half wound of the centipede into his flesh, using knives imbued with death and death, but at the same time Rani has the other half carved into her own flesh to achieve her true goal, the death of her flesh without the consequence of losing her soul. And thus Godwin is basically used as a totem to take the soul death so Rani can escape with her soul out of her Empyrean flesh. Burial of Godwin Godwin's living and death corpse is buried at the base of the Great Tree Roots and from his body grows the death root which spreads through the lands between via these massive roots. This leads to the rise of those who live in death, living reminders of the Golden Order's flaws and thus it becomes the target for Golden Order fundamentalist hunters. Fortisax mourns the death of his friend and enters his dream in an attempt to fight off the spread of death from within Godwin's own mind. Radan's Studies and the Star Scourge Conflict I am placing Rani's plot prior to Radan's study of gravity magic at Celia because while he does use it to save Celia in the Star Scourge Conflict, I believe his motivations have to be the arresting of fate and stopping Rani's plans. We know that Radan is more Golden Order sympathetic than his siblings. His Golden Armour set shows us the figures that he admires. His father in the Red Plume and Godfrey, Lord of the Battlefield, two massive figures within the Golden Pantheon. We also know that Radan stopping the stars directly affects Rani's schemes, as Selen says the following. The stars alter the fate of the Karian royal family and the fate of your mistress Rani. But long ago, General Radan challenged the swirling constellations and in a crushing victory arrested their cycles. Now he is the force that repulses the stars. If General Radan were to die, the stars would resume their movement. And so too would Rani's destiny. And in consort, if we read the telescope item description, it reads, During the age of the Erd Tree, Carrion astrology withered on the vine. The fate once writ in the night skies has been fettered by the Golden Order. So it is Radan that fetters fate, and he's actually referred to here by the telescope as the Golden Order. As we are told by a sword monument in Caled, Radan's victory over the stars is called the Star Scourge Conflict. Celia is kept safe from some calamity, and he earns his famous moniker, the Star Scourge. Marika shatters the Elden Ring. For whatever reason you believe, the death of Godwin is the catalyst for Marika finally shattering the Elden Ring. The intro cinematic shows the struggle between Marika and Radigan, and Marika's hammer item description tells us what's happening here. Marika is using the hammer to shatter the Elden Ring, while Radigan is trying to repair it, both sides vying for control of the same body. Clearly the two halves now have radically different beliefs and views, which leads to this struggle over the hammer. Oh Radigan, leal hound of the Golden Order, thou art yet to become me. Thou art yet to become a god. Let us be shattered, both mine other self. Yet ultimately we know who is victorious and what happens. The Elden Ring is shattered, and the world is never the same again. And now I'll leave you in the capable hands of my good friend Lorehunter, who will take us through the next era, the Shattering.
Why, hello there. Now we find ourselves at the Shattering War, the conflict that ultimately plunges the lands between into a cold war that lasts for 5,000 years, according to author George R.R. R. Martin. After Merica shattered the Elden Ring, the opening cinematic tells us that her demigod children inherited great runes, shards of the Elden Ring, as well as an empty throne. An Altus Plateau sword monument explains that a sovereign alliance formed between the demigods, but that the peace was short-lived. Diverging ideologies, distrust, and ambition rotted this sovereign alliance. In the first defense of Landell, the Erd Tree capital was besieged by Godfrey the Grafted, descendant of Godfrey the First Elden Lord. Landell repelled the assault, and the Dragon Knight Kristoff heroically captured Godfrey, a feat that earned him Erd Tree burial according to the Knight's Ashes. We learn from Godric's soldier ashes and dialogue from Kenneth Height that Godfrey's kin, Godric the Grafted, fled Landell and was pursued all the way to Stormvale by Starscourge Radon. Around this time, Morgoth the Grace-given, veiled monarch and lord of Landell, took on the persona of Margit the Fell Omen. The Knight's Cavalry set tells us that under the command of the Fell Omen, they were deliverers of death for great warriors, knights, and champions. The war progressed, and the perfumers of the capital turned their healing arts into arts of war. The uplifting aromatic states they commanded troops by using their arts to remove their fear of death and to continue fighting. As the war drew on, they wielded fire, once prohibited for use by those who serve the Erd Tree, to burn their enemies according to the spark aromatic. Now we arrive at the second defense of Landell, where the fell omens stacked high the corpses of heroes and kept the inner wall of Landell secure, repelling the attack. Morgoth would continue to don the mantle of the fell omen through the arrival of the Tarnished, extinguishing the ambitions of any who dared seek out the Erd Tree to be Elden Lord. Gideon Offnir the All-Knowing explains that around this time the most appalling battle occurred along the slopes of Mount Gelmir. Landell clashed with the forces of Praetor Rikard, who in the depths of his blasphemy had declared war on the gods and burned a minor Erd tree. This horrific battle took its toll on Landell's army, diminishing its power. Rikard's horrific blasphemy disillusioned and dissipated his remaining forces, as Rikard was fully consumed by his plot to devour the gods. During this time, sword monuments in Liurnia and Limgrave state that Melania the Severed and her clean-wrought knights marched southward. The Academy of Raya Lucaria had its gates shut and declared it would not interfere in the Shattering, according to Tops the Bluntstone. Melania defeated Godric the Graft in battle, forcing him to beg for mercy after insulting her. Godric would remain within Stormvale following this defeat, continuing to graft himself so that he might rise to the strength of his forefathers of the Golden Lineage. Now we arrive at the climax of the Shattering War. Melania, Blade of Mikola, and General Radon were the two mightiest demigods remaining according to the story trailer. As illustrated in the prologue, Melania and her Cleanrot knights met Radon and his Redmanes in the Kaled Wilds. The armies clashed and these two demigods locked horns in combat. Radon and Melania wounded each other and fought to a standstill. It was then that Melania, Blade of Mikola, gave into the rot within her and unleashed the Scarlet Aeonia 
an act that decimated the region of Kaled and put both herself and Radon out of commission. Radon, his mind rotted, would endlessly stalk the battlefield awaiting an honorable death according to witch hunter Jaren. Melania's knight Finley would take the slumbering and consumed Melania back to the Halleck Tree, where she would remain, awaiting the return of her brother. Mikola, however, had been ripped out of the Halleck Tree and kidnapped by Morgoth's twin brother Moog while Melania campaigned as illustrated in the prologue. Mikola's slumbering corpse would remain in Moog's clutches as he attempted to establish the Moogwin dynasty with Mikola as his god. And so the Shattering War came to a standstill with every side broken and no lord to take the throne. With no lord to succeed Merica, the Greater Will abandoned the broken lands between. But that was not the end. And now we enter the era that we are currently in, what I will call the Age of the Tarnished. The Tarnish Return Ah, great runes are the stuff of demigods, the children of the goddess, Queen Marika, she who is vessel of the Elden Ring. Tainted by the strength of their runes, her children warred, but none could become Elden Lord, and so grace was extended to your kind. The Tarnished. Anea tells us everything we really need to know about why the Tarnished were returned to the Lands Between. The demigods had failed to take the throne and restore order, and so this disgraced warrior class that had been left in the pocket by Marika and the Greater Will was seen as the last option to restore order. We know that even before the player character enters the fray, the Tarnished have already been here for a long time and have a fairly storied history. We know that Vargram, was one of the first Tarnished to visit Round Table Hold. We know the likes of Vike and Bernal had their time in the sun, both being serious contenders for lordship. And this is the world that we step into, a world with a rich and bloody history, from the ancient dragons to the Battle of Aeonia. What a rich world that both George R. R. Martin and Miyazaki have crafted here. So I hope you enjoyed this take on the timeline guys. For those who are new to the channel, you won't be aware, but this was my 100k special video for my Elden Ring lore channel, which recently reached 100,000. I usually do long form lore content, so this was a bit of a change for me. I really appreciate everyone's support in both watching this video and supporting the channel over the years. And if you are new to the channel, please consider subscribing if you do like Elden Ring lore, as I do do in-depth and long lore takes. In regards to the timeline, of course the vast majority of it is just up to interpretation. Many events could certainly be swapped in and out. The aim of this video was not to claim I've got a definitive timeline. That is of course impossible, but it was an exercise to string together a plausible chain of events, as this world is absolutely fascinating and has some amazing events, and I wanted to try and get some sort of order. Of course this was too massive a task for me alone, so I'd like to again thank Lore Hunter and Tarnished Archaeologist for giving me their guidance and their opinions not only on my timeline, but giving their thoughts on certain areas, as you have heard. Please go and subscribe to their channels, as they're both phenomenal members of this lore community. But of course what I'm interested in now is your take guys. What's your take on the timeline? Do you have things similar to us with a little bit swapped here and then? Or do you have a radically different view? I'd love to hear your takes on the timeline. Please leave me your comments below, as well as comments on what you'd like me to cover next on the channel. My next planned video is my Albanorix lore video, which is of course a bit of a 100k special as well, 
given the importance that the Alban Orcs and the Blood Clot has had to the channel. But until next time, guys, I hope you have a wonderful night, and I will see you in the lands between. Take care, and have a wonderful evening. <laughs>